Now Moses is, is writing Deuteronomy near the end of his life, near the end of his leadership over Israel and his ministry to them. And as he's writing it, there's great hope for the next generation. As they're about to embark on the next step in their journey, as they're about to go into the promised land, it's the time of the conquest. Now in Deuteronomy, we see the, the Mosaic law that was given in Exodus being explained and applied and renewed with this new generation. The entire generation that Moses was a part of was about to die off. As their judgment for their disobedience, they were to die off before going into the promised land. But Joshua would lead them in. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is instructing them on who they are to listen to when they get into the land. Now leading into our text, Moses has just instructed the people concerning kings and concerning priests. And now he's going to instruct them concerning prophets that God will raise up to lead the people of Israel. So tonight we'll see that in a world of chaos, God provides a means of guidance for his people. Starting in verse 9 of chapter 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Let us pray. Father, I thank you that we can stand before you because of the great mediator that you have sent. Christ Jesus, who has stood in our place. I pray that as we approach this text tonight, Lord, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would correct us in areas where we need correction and bring encouragement where we need to be encouraged unto faithfulness. I pray that your spirit would empower me to preach your text with clarity and with wisdom and that you would edit my words as I preach. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, two years ago, me and Amelia had the opportunity to go to Chicago and while we were there, we went to the famous Field Museum. It's one of the largest museums in the world. And even though it was built in 1893, it still stands as one of the largest museums in the world. And a significant portion of it is devoted to different people groups around the world 
both past and present people groups. Uh, anthropology is, is one of the, the, the big features of this museum. And so as you walk around, there's, there's different portions for different people groups. And I remember we, we would go to each people group and we saw some distinct features as we went through. We saw the Egyptian culture. We saw the Central and South American cultures of the Aztecs and Mayans. We even saw the Eskimo culture of those in Alaska and the African culture. And one thing that immediately struck me and Amelia was how each culture had worship as its central function and as its central features as we walk through these ex exhibits. And this shouldn't shock any Christian as we understand Romans 1 and how we are worshiping people, but we have exchanged the truth for the lie and we worship false things. But it wasn't just that they happened to worship on the side it was very central to everything that they did. We noticed very quickly. As we walk through the Egyptian exhibit, you can see how they were so obsessed with death and the afterlife and how they would try to appease their gods so that they would influence the natural course of events in their lives in a favorable way for the Egyptians. Then we went to the Aztecs and the Mayans where their religion is centered around a sacrificial system, a very brutal sacrificial system where human sacrifice is commonplace or was commonplace for the Aztecs and the Mayans. And then I remember we walked through the Eskimo exhibit and we saw examples of their animistic practices and how their shamans mediated with the spirits. And then we walked into one room at the, the very last room of the Eskimo exhibit where there was towering totem poles all around us. And they're filled with, with commemorations of their genealogies and of their false gods. And then last we went to the Africa exhibit where we saw how voodoo and witchcraft were so common to the, the cultures in Africa. And we actually had the opportunity to go to Africa this year, me and Amelia. Uh, her family is originally from South Africa, and we witnessed some of this firsthand. They believe that in times of drought, if you start fires, that the gods will rain down rain and, and bring relief for the fires. And so we were grilling out one evening, and uh, it was starting to get late and we start to see fires pop up in the field next to us and we were wondering what was going on and they explained or her family explained to us that this was common in Africa that as it gets dry the people will go and light their fields on fire so that their gods would would rain down rain and so in this ex Africa exhibit at the field museum we we continued and it got into the modern era and we got we began to see how Christianity began to influence the African culture but then we also saw how they would adopt the Christian worldview into their voodoo and pagan practices. And we saw examples of, of pagan forms of uh, pagan worship mixed with baptism and different things like that of their syncretistic faith. And so as we look at Deuteronomy 18 tonight, Moses is warning the people as they're about to enter a land filled with religious chaos and confusion. They've been chosen, they've been taken from a pagan land, God has made them his own people, and now he's leading into this land that was filled with pagan worship by the surrounding nations. Moses is warning them that they're not to look to these practices. Instead, in the midst of all these practices, God will guide his people in a different way. In verse 9, he begins to, he begins to tell, tell them what they are not to do. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of these nations. He's warning them. 
He's warning them that as they go into the land, do not adopt the ways of these people around you. Do not become like them. Do not set your lives in the pattern that they set their lives. You're to be distinct. Don't learn your way of life from them. We're so prone to do this as humans. We go into a place, and whether it's our work environment or school, but we go out into the world, and it's so tempting for us to conform to the ways of the world around us. It's so tempting as the peer pressure comes in, as those that surround us put pressure on us. It's so easy for us to conform to the pattern of life around us, to worship the things that they worship, to seek guidance the way that they seek guidance. But Moses is telling us not to do this. He's telling us to be distinct. You're not to be like the nations around you. And he tells us why. He says, because their practices are abominable. Some translations will translate this detestable. It's something that's repulsive to a holy God. He's saying, their ways are repulsive to me. He wants no part of, of this pagan form of worship, these, these pagan ways that, that the people in the land practice. And then in verses 10 and 11, he gives some examples of what they're doing in the land. He says in verse 10, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. That's a laundry list of things that they were doing in the land, but it begins with, with child sacrifice. They would do this quite often to fulfill a vow or to offer thanksgiving, but sometimes they also did it because they thought that they could discern the course of events ahead of them, that they could find out the will of their gods. And then we see divinery, sorcery, divination, and it's, it's a variety of methods that they use to determine the minds of the gods. We see fortune-telling, interpreting omens. They would use revelatory objects to ascertain future events. There's witchcraft, there's charmers, there's spellcasters. And then the last three, he says, mediums, necromancers, one who inquires of the dead. They believe that the dead had control over worldly affairs, that they could consult the dead to have control over the, the things in their life, that they could manipulate them somehow. And all three of these last terms, they all kind of sum up this same idea of, of inquiring of the dead. And sadly, it's not much later that King Saul actually does this. In 1 Samuel 28, King Saul, the Holy Spirit has left King Saul because of his disobedience. And Samuel the prophet has died, and he's about to fight the Philistines, and he's looking for guidance. And so he goes to the witch at Endor, the medium, and she's able somehow to bring Saul back. And all he gets is judgment from Saul because of his disobedience. And so so even in Israel's history, these things begin to play out as, as they begin to become like the land. But all of these things is based on the idea that the supernatural realm can be harnessed for our own personal benefit. That one could invoke these spiritual forces to affect the outcome of events in their life. I think Daniel Block is helpful here as he says that this is the opposite of faith. The way that they would interact with their gods is the opposite of faith. Because it makes God into some impersonal force who's capricious in his attitude towards us and one in whom we can manipulate for our own desires. It reverses the divine order, 
which calls upon humans to, to, to fulfill the divine agenda rather than us fulfilling God's agenda, as we're called to do. These practices assume a false view of the relationship between God and man. And sadly, I think many people view God in this manner. Though they may not be practicing witchcraft or practicing some of these things, we begin to view God in the same manner sometimes as other religions. One who we can manipulate for our own agenda. That we can manipulate God to benefit us in the ways that we want. But that's not the Christian faith. We're to submit to the will of our God that he has laid down for us. And his will is not abstract or impersonal. It's something that he has actually communicated to his people. And that's what Moses is telling us here is that he will communicate with his people. You don't need to communicate with God the way that they do. For I will communicate with you is what Moses is about to tell him. So we don't look for revelation by other means. Rather, we look towards God's means alone for revelation, which Moses is about to show us. And like I said, you may not be struggling with witchcraft or consulting the dead. I doubt that our members here at Fisherville are struggling with those things. I doubt that they are. But I do believe that there are areas in our lives where we're making decisions based upon worldly concerns and worldly ways rather than the revealed will of God that he's given us. Because it's so easy for us to fall into the pattern of life that this world lives in and to begin to think like them, to begin to worship like them, to worship the things that they worship rather than the things that God has designed us to worship himself. And in verse 12, he goes on to say that it's on account of these things that God's judgment is coming. In verse 12, Moses writes, For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The person who does these things is an abomination. And again, as I said earlier, it's, it's the reality that they are repulsive to a holy God. And because of these things, God is driving out the nations. He will drive out the people before them as they go into the land. It will be God's divine judgment against this people. People are often troubled by the fact that God drove out the nations so that Israel could be in the promised land. But it's because they come with the wrong assumptions. They, they think that all, all people are innocent. And that the Canaanites were just these innocent people in the land and God wanted this land for his people instead. But that's not the reality. God didn't kick an innocent people out of the land. He kicked a people out of the land that were worshiping false gods. And this whole laundry list of bad things is describing them. And on it is child sacrifice. For these reasons, God is kicking them out of the land. And so, because of this, Moses is saying, don't act like them. Don't put your life in the pattern that they have their life. You be distinct. And that's what he tells them in verses 13 and 14. He says, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. He says, instead, you should be blameless before the Lord. That's what he's calling Israel too. He's contrasting the pattern of life that they, they live. The pattern of life that they seek after. And he's saying, unlike them, you be blameless, Israel. You're to be distinct. You're not to live like them. You're not to look like them. As you go into the land, 
You're to be my people. You're to be obedient to me. God calls us to live in a manner that looks nothing like this world around us. And even the laws that God will, will give Israel, it's so that they would be distinct. All these, these food laws and all these different laws that God gives his people, it's so that they would be set apart, so that they would be distinct. So Fisherville, as we go out into our jobs and out into this world, we have to ask ourselves, do we just fit in with the world around us? Do we set our lives in their pattern? Do we begin to look like them as we go out into our jobs? Because God's calling us to be distinct. Are we distinct? As we go out into the, the world, do people wonder, why is it that we live the way we do? Do people see our lives and wonder, why is it that we are distinct? Would we be characterized as blameless? And I've often, often witnessed this in the workplace. I've witnessed both those that are distinct and those that fail to be distinct. Sometimes there's people who I observe from afar at work, and I see that they seem to be different. They conduct themselves around others in a different manner. They communicate differently. And as I get to know them, I find out that they're Christian. And it all seems to make sense. The, the, what I've observed in their life seems to be the Christian testimony. And so as I hear that they are Christian, I, I'm very grateful. It causes great joy in me to see that they are living out their Christian faith. It's a great encouragement. But then I've also observed those at, in the working place and in the environment who go to work and live just like the world. I, I, I once met a lady when I worked at Sam's Club who was known as the most negative person at our workplace. She slandered everyone that she worked with. No one wanted to work with her. No one wanted to communicate with her. People would avoid her. And one day I was talking with her, and she began to tell me that she teaches a youth Sunday school class at her local church. And the first thing that came to my mind was, wow, I never would have guessed that. You know, I, I, I didn't say that. Maybe I should have. But she was not living distinctly at all. If anything, not only was she living like the pagans, but even the pagans looked at her and were shocked by the way that she lived. And so Moses is calling his people, Moses is calling God's people to be distinct. He's saying you're not to look like those in the land. You're not to, to practice the ways that they practice. You're not to, to go by the customs that they're accustomed to. But instead, you're, you're to be distinct. He even says in verse 14 that God has not allowed you to do this, is what he says. God doesn't even allow the Israelites to adopt these practices because these uh, practices are an abomination. They're detestable to him. And sadly, it doesn't take long for the Israelites to become just like the Canaanites. As we look at the book of Judges, we see Israel just spiral downhill continually as they begin to adopt the practices of the nations around them. And at the, by the end of the book of Judges, not only do you ask yourselves, are they just as bad as the people around them, but you ask yourselves, are they even worse than those around them. And so Moses is calling us to be distinct here. And Fisherville, I pray that that would be our testimony as we go out into the world, that we would be blameless in the way that we conduct ourselves, that we would not conduct ourselves in the manner by which this world conducts itself, but that we would be blameless. I'm not saying that we'll be sinless, but we will most definitely be set apart. We will most definitely live a pattern of life that is nothing like theirs, we would live a pattern of life that would honor God. 
So we should ask ourselves, would that be how we would be described by those who, who know us at work and outside of the church and in other places? And in verses 9 through 14, he's been telling us to be distinct. He's been telling us to not approach our God in the manner by which they approach their gods. He's telling us in those verses, this is what we're not to do. You're not to do these things, is what he's been telling them in 9 through 14. But he doesn't leave them with uncertainty on how they're to act or how they're to conduct themselves or how they're to be guided. Instead, he tells them that God will show them a way. In a world of chaos and confusion, God doesn't leave us without guidance. There's no need to resort to the practices of these people because God will provide prophets to show you how to live, to call you to faithfulness. He says, instead, your direction will come from the actual words of God. Turn with me to verse 19. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. He's saying, instead, God will raise up prophets for you. You are to listen to them. Don't listen to this world around you. Don't listen to human wisdom and teaching. Listen to those that God raises up, the prophets. He says, they will teach you. They will point you to faithful living. They will give you direction and guidance. And unlike the practices of the world, it will be God who will take the initiative in doing this. It will be God that will raise up these prophets. And describes these prophets later as ones who God puts his words literally in their mouth. They will have the words of God. That's what he's telling them, that, that you will have the words of God to teach you, to instruct you, to guide you. And as he's talking of this prophet, he says that he will be a mediator like Moses. If you turn to verse 16, Moses says, Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. The institution of prophets is patterned after Horeb uh, at this event that happened in Exodus 20. At Horeb, they were given the commandments. But they also saw thunder. They saw flashes of lightning. They saw smoke from the mountain and the sound of a trumpet. And they feared greatly because of this. As they stood at the mountain, they had great fear. And they recognized, they recognized that they needed a mediator. That the people of God needed a mediator who would stand between them and God. One who could stand between them and God and deliver God's word to the people. And that's exactly what Moses did at Horeb is, as he delivered God's word directly to the people. He stood as their mediator at that time. And he's saying that, that this is, is the pattern by which God will send his prophets just as it was at Horeb, it will be later for you, Israel, that God will send prophets who will stand between God and you, who will deliver God's word to you. He will raise them up to guide you, to teach you and instruct you, that he will be a mediator, much like Moses was. And it will be a mediator like that who brings God's word to the people. In verse 18, he, he continues, I, or God actually speaks now and says, I will raise up for them. 
a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God will raise up a prophet like Moses and literally put his words in his mouth is how it's described. This prophet shall speak all that God commands on his behalf. And this, this verse is packed with realities that will play out throughout the scriptures. God is setting up a pattern by which he will interact with his people. But yet, it's always looking forward to this individual prophet. If you look at it, it reads, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. There's this idea that both corporately God will raise up prophets, a succession of prophets who will preach, but also an individual. This is so common throughout the scriptures as we see passages that are both corporate and individual. I want to guide us to just a couple of them because I think that it shows great light unto this text. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It'll be in verse 12 of 2 Samuel. I'm going to take us to a couple passages so that we can see that, that this prophet is both corporate and is both individual. And who ultimately it is pointing to. But in 2 Samuel 7 verse 12, God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever. Or I will establish his kingdom and then it goes on to say, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Right? This will be a kingdom forever. And the reason why I take us here is because it has the same language of Deuteronomy, where God says, I will raise up your offspring after you. It is God who will be raising up those after David, both corporately in the Davidic kings that follow, but most individually in Christ Jesus, who is that king forever. And then if we turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see this same type of language used of the, the priests. God is rejecting Eli's household because of their unfaithfulness in ministering to God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'll be in verse 35. God again uses this, I will raise up language. It says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. So this time a priest. We've seen the king and David. We've now seen a priest. He says, I will... Raise up a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So again, this forever language, just like with the Davidic covenant. God is saying, I will do this. I will raise up. This same type of expectation is in Deuteronomy 18. That I will raise up a prophet, both corporately in this succession of prophets who had come to lead, guide, and instruct the people, to call them to faithfulness, but most ultimately in one who would be the perfect prophet to come, the one who is like Moses, but a greater Moses. And as Deuteronomy closes, let's turn to Deuteronomy 34. As Deuteronomy closes, there is this ex expectation. Moses will die before they go into the promised land. God had already told him so. That it would be Joshua who would take the next generation in. 
And in Joshua, we see a great leader who has many Moses-like qualities and many Moses-like events even occur within the salvation narrative of going into the land as they cross over the Jordan on dry ground. God parts the Jordan and they cross on the dry ground. That would have reminded that, that next generation of the generation before them that also crossed on dry ground. And so there's so many similarities between Joshua and Moses, and there's this expectation, could he be that prophet to come? Could he be that prophet like Moses? In verse 9 it says in Joshua, of chapter 34 in Deuteronomy, verse 9, And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses is giving his authority to Joshua. He is passing on the leadership to Joshua. And Brian has been preaching through Exodus. And so often we see the disobedience of the people. The Israelites so often are disobedient. But in this great moment, as, as the leadership is going to this next generation, it actually says that the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded. We see this Moses-like figure who is about to usher it, the people into the land under God's direction. And we see a people who are obedient. And as we ask ourselves, could he be the prophet to come? The very next verse crushes all of our hopes. In verse 10, it reads, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So though, there, though there's this expectation, could Joshua be that one? We see him get the leadership, and in the very next verse, he is not the one. It says he is not that prophet like Moses. But then we see other prophets come along in this line. We see other prophets who have events that occur so much like the Moses narratives. Like Elijah, who's sustained in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he goes up to the same mountain, and he encounters God. So many things in that narrative remind us of Moses. And then we have Jeremiah. One commentator even described in his commentary, the, the title of his commentary is actually a prophet like Moses for Jeremiah. Jeremiah described himself as a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. And then in Jeremiah's calling in, in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, he uses Deuteronomy 18 language. As God is calling him, God tells him, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. This is right out of Deuteronomy 18, 18. Yet we know that Jeremiah is not this prophet to come. And then as we turn over to the New Testament, turn with me to John chapter 1. Look at verse 21 of John chapter 1. John the Baptist has had a prominent ministry out in the desert as he is the forerunner of Christ. And the people come to him in John 21 and they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answers, no. What's interesting is that much of John the Baptist's ministry actually does look like Elijah's ministry. Yet he understands that there is more to what they are asking. Though he is an Elijah-like figure who, who stands in many ways much like Elijah, they're looking for more as they say, are you the prophet? They have this expectation 
the Israelites have this expectation, and John the Baptist says, no, I am not. But then later in John 6, turn with me to John 6, chapter, or sorry, verse 14. They now ask Jesus this question. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's provided bread for the people in the desert, much like God who sustained the Israelites with bread from heaven, the manna in the desert. And the people see this sign, and, and they ask him, in verse 14, this, or they say to him, they say, this indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. They're making these connections. They're seeing these things that he is doing. And again, in John 7, verse 40, that same statement is made after Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Much like Moses in the desert and the water from the rock that sustained the people. In verse 40 of chapter 7, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. They're understanding that he is in this pattern of prophets to come. That in these Moses-like events, he is pointing us to himself and saying, I am that prophet to come. And then in Acts, the, the last place we'll turn is Acts chapter 3. Peter makes this connection and quotes Deuteronomy 18, 18. He makes this connection and he points to Christ saying, this is that prophet to come. In chapter 3, he is, he is speaking to the, the Jews and it is somewhat of a confrontational discussion that he is having with them. In verse 14, he says, But you denied the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. He's confronting them for rejecting the Messiah. And then he goes on in verse tw 22 of chapter 3 to say, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every, every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. He's pointing back. He's pointing back to this Moses-like prophet that was to come. And Peter's making that connection. Stephen will later do it in chapter 7. He will also quote Deuteronomy 18, 18, and say this is that prophet like Moses. He's saying you didn't listen to him. He's the prophet to come. He's the one you were supposed to listen to. Who would literally have the words of God in his mouth. Because he is the son of God incarnate. He is the perfect mediator. And he's saying... You did not listen to him. God would raise up prophets for you to listen to, and most ultimately in Christ Jesus, he would raise Christ to reveal truth to you because he is God's revelation of himself to us. He is that prophet who is to come. He is the revealer of truth, of all wisdom, of all God's wisdom. That he would point us to faithfulness. And he is our mediator. A perfect mediator. Where Moses was an imperfect mediator. Christ is a perfect mediator. Who would mediate on our behalf. 
But we have to be careful because even the Muslims revere Jesus as a prophetic figure. We can't look at him just in this role of prophet. We must look beyond just that. One thing when you look at Christ, you can't just look at any one office or any one part of his nature. Otherwise, you will make errors. If you look at his deity apart from his humanity, you'll be an heir. If you look at his humanity apart from his deity, you'll be an heir. Same thing if you look at him as a prophet, but no more, you'll be in serious error. Because he is Christ Jesus, he is prophet, priest, and king. He is God in the flesh who has come to save sinners. But at the same time, he is prophet. He is the one that would reveal God's truth to us. He is that prophet like Moses. He is the one that Moses and the entire prophetic office point forward to. The entire prophetic office has this expectation of this one to come, Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter and Stephen are doing in the book of Acts, is they are pointing back and saying the entire prophetic office has pointed to this day and to this man, Christ Jesus, your Savior. And he is the one that would reveal God's truth to you most supremely. So as we turn back to Deuteronomy, verse 18 is giving us this expectation that God would rise up, raise up a line of prophets, and in particular, this one prophet to come. And in all of this, God is giving his people comfort. Comfort and confidence. Because God won't leave his people without sufficient revelation, without guidance, as they go into the land. They will have guidance. They will have God's spokesmen who come and point them back to faithful living, who point them back to covenant faithfulness. He's saying you don't need to seek your guidance from alternative sources because God will raise up prophets who will speak God's word to you. You will have the words of God. God won't leave his people without sufficient revelation. They don't need to seek guidance from alternative sources. Even Christians now too often go beyond what God has revealed. They're always looking for some type of new, fresh revelation. But at every turn in God's redemptive history, he's had sufficient revelation for his people. His revelation is sufficient. And that's what we are to look to. And that's what Moses is pointing us to. He's saying you don't need to go after these practices in the land. Because God will give you sufficient revelation. He will raise people up at the right time to give you his words. His timing in raising up his spokesman was perfect. And we are the recipients of their work. We are the recipients of God putting his words in their mouths. In the prophets and the apostles' mouths. That's how they're described as literally having God's word in their mouth. This beautiful reality that these spokesmen would be inspired by the Spirit to speak truth to God's people, God's truth, God's word. The surrounding nations, they may have vague omens, they may have unreliable signs that they try to interpret, but he's saying that God's people will have the clear words of God. There's great comfort in that. There's great peace in knowing that in this chaotic world, we have God's word. We can stand upon his word with confidence 
because he has revealed it to us in his way and in his time. And so the New Testament church, we can be so grateful because in the New Testament church, the Spirit of God has inspired the words of Scripture. And that same Spirit that inspired the prophets, inspired the word, words of our Scriptures, also guides God's people. The same Spirit indwells believers and guides us to faithfulness. Points us back to the word that was spoken by the prophets. And teaches and instructs God's people. And in verse 19, we see that there will be a reckoning for those that do not heed this word. We are guided by his spirit and his word, and that's how we are to live, and that alone. Verse 19 warns us, and whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. He's saying there will be a reckoning for all who fail to heed the word of God. There will be that day. Judgment will come on all those who do not listen to the word of God. And most ultimately, Christ Jesus, who is the revelation of the word of God. That's what he is warning us. That is exactly what Peter was warning the Israelites in Acts chapter 3. Peter is warning them, you failed to listen to him. And he actually takes this, this language and, and he says, all those that do not listen to this prophet that was to come will be destroyed, is what Peter says. That those that do not heed God's word, and most ultimately Christ, will be destroyed. And so Moses is warning the people. He's saying, you're not to listen. You're not to follow the pagan ways of this world. You're to follow God's wisdom and guidance that he will give you in his words that he will speak through his prophets, and you must listen to him. You must listen to these prophets. You must listen to the word of God, because apart from that will be destruction. He's saying apart from that, God will judge you. We're to submit to God's word, and most ultimately to his great prophet, priest, and king, Christ Jesus. Now, when me and Amelia visited the Field Museum, it reminded us that there's a world that's out there that's lost in its sin and in need of being pointed to Christ. And pointed to his truth that he's handed down through the prophets and through his word. And as we live out our exile on this earth in a land that is not our own, we may not be tempted to seek guidance from divination and mediums and sorcery. I understand that. But there are other ways that our lives are influenced by the pagan practices of this world. Where we do need to submit to God's word. Where we are seeking guidance from the wrong means. And though it may not be these pagan means of the Canaanites, we have our own ways that we seek guidance and direction. And he's pointing us back to God's word. Moses is pointing us back to faithfulness, to trust those that God would give his people, to, to point them in the direction of his ways. And we, much, we must approach God and his guidance on God's terms and not our own, not the terms of this world. Our faith is based on certainty, the certainty of God's word that he has delivered 
by the mouth of the prophets and the work of his spirit. We're to look to these means of revelation and not the means of this world. We must take our direction from God and God alone. As I said, we may not think that these pagan forms of mysticism are are prevalent anymore, but I would also like to say I I disagree. I think they are prevalent. If, If you were to come to prison with us, you would see some of these things. Once a week, we go once a month to prison, but once a week there are Wiccans that go to prison. And some of those people that go to Wiccan services also go to our chapel service. So if you can imagine, there's a place where people have all different types of pagan beliefs. Or maybe go on missions, and you'll begin to see more of those sort of practices that Moses warns about as you go out into the world. When we went to South Africa, we, saw, we heard of other practices. Her cousin was driving us through the hills, and she warned us that this was not the best town to stop in and said that it's common knowledge that they still do practice human sacrifice in one of the towns in South Africa. And South Africa is one of the more industrialized nations of Africa. And so we may not think that, that the pagan ways of this world are the same as it was with the Canaanites, but there are places where it still is, and even in our backyard. And the natural ways of this world, they're an abomination, and we're called to be distinct from them. We must work to point people away from their pagan pattern of life and point them to Christ. That's what we're to be doing is pointing people to Christ, to his word, to his wisdom, to his truth. And so if we haven't encountered the first half of this text in our world, I challenge us that maybe our world is too small. That we should be about going into this world, engaging those around us, showing them their false worship and pointing them to Christ. Pointing them to the salvation that's offered through the one true prophet, priest, and king. Pointing them to his word, which he has delivered for our guidance in a chaotic world. Let us pray. Father, I just thank you that you have delivered your word through the prophets, that we could be the beneficiaries of your truth and of your wisdom that you have spoken through them, and most ultimately the revelation that you have given us through the Son, Christ Jesus. I just pray that you would help us to be obedient to your word, Lord, that you would guide us and direct us by your spirit, and that we would submit to your truth and your biblical wisdom, that as a church, that that is what we would be about. I pray that as we turn our direction to this business meeting, that we would have a spirit of Christian unity and love and fellowship and that we would be about the things of God. That the thing that we would most be concerned about in our church is glorifying you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Well, we are going to open our special called business meeting for tonight.
And I think the words that we just heard are very appropriate as we seek God's guidance, uh, as we seek to be good stewards of that which he has given us.